I'm Dr. Fiona Lovely, and this is the Not Your Mother's Menopause podcast. I'm taking the taboos of menopause and perimenopause and bringing light to the dark. No bullshit, no shame. It's time for us to gain a new paradigm in female health, out with the old and in with the new, and I'm bringing fresh perspectives from someone in the arena. I've been practicing women's health for nearly 20 years, and I'm spilling the tea and what it means to live at midlife, knowing that the best is yet to come. I'm sharing my Gen X approach to living through this transition, sassy, a bit sweary, and always honest. Tactical tips and instantly usable information is my aim. I hope to make you laugh and that you learn something new that helps you embrace the change. Together, we bring power to the Perry. Onward to the podcast. Welcome to the Not Your Mother's Menopause podcast. I'm Dr. Fiona Lovely. Thanks for joining me today. I have a really exciting interview today. Uh, I so enjoyed the time I recently got to spend with Baz Moffat. Baz is a former team Great Britain Olympic rower, retired from sport to launch a successful international consulting and coaching business. A prominent voice in the women's health movement, Baz specializes in the pelvic floor a pivotal yet vastly underappreciated nucleus in the female body. She is the author of the Female Body Bible with Drs. Emma Ross and Dr. Bella Smith. She's the co-founder of The Well HQ. She has a master's in sports science, and her jam is female-specific issues in sport and physical activity. Man, did we have a good conversation. So um, I do want to let you know that we do talk about uh, trauma, uh, sexual trauma, and the pelvis. So consider this your trigger warning for sensitive ears. And I think it's pretty obvious when that's coming, so you can skip over that bit if you wish to. But as always, if you're interested in seeing the video version of this and all my interviews, you can join my Patreon page, just patreon.com slash Dr. Fiona Lovely, links in the show notes, and then you get to see our faces, (laughs) which is kind of a fun thing. Now, before I get on to speaking to Baz, I think you're going to love this one. Please take a moment to listen to our sponsors. I would like to acknowledge our sponsor, Athletic Greens, which is now called AG1. This is a vitamin, mineral, and probiotic greens drink. It helps me boost my energy and gives me the nutrients I need in case I don't get what I want and need in my diet for the day. It tastes great, and it has mushrooms and digestive enzymes and adaptogens for adrenal health. I take it once a day. It's truly an all-in-one supplement. If you would like to try AG, please visit athleticgreens.com slash Fiona Lovely, and they'll send you a year's supply of liquid vitamin D3 with K2 
and five free travel packs, which come in mighty handy for getting your AG on the go. Thanks, Athletic Greens, for sponsoring the Not Your Mother's Menopause podcast. All right. Welcome, Baz Moffitt, to the Not Your Mother's Menopause podcast. I'm Dr. Fiona Lovely. Welcome. Thank you very much for having me. Well, I'm excited to talk to you today. Of course, we came to just know each other from uh, a mutual friend who's uh, uh, Patty Hall. She says, we have lots to to talk about in common and I think she knows our work well so <laughs> yeah yeah I'm sure she does yeah she really does she was very excited when she made the introduction she sure was she sure <laughs> was so you and I got some magic to figure out together today so let's do it let's talk women's health so tell me about you please um god that's a big question I will I won't try I won't waffle on for too long but um uh, in a nutshell, my background is in sport. I've loved sports since the moment I came into this world. Um, I made it onto the British rowing team um, in the women's eight um, in my in my in my sort of late twenties, and then so that you know that was very much eyes on the prize, fully focused, driven. I know exactly where I want to be and how I'm going to do it. And I thought, oh, I've cracked it. I've cracked life. I know I know like how to achieve. I know what I want to be doing. Stop rowing went into personal training and fitness, loved it, loved coaching and um, got married, had two kids. And my, it, it was, it was incredible. It was, it was, I had you know, two children, two very, very contrasting birthing experiences. Um, the first one I approached like an athlete. So I approached it as in like, I'm great. I'm physically very capable. Whatever I ask my body to do, it does. I'll be fine. And that was a car crash of a mindset to have. And like the effects of that, just that arrogance, like that, that, that arrogance was like, I, 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 I had no cope. I had no ability to cope with like the physical pain that, that, you know, that, that happened with my birth, uh, with the birth of my first son. And it took me years to get over that. Had another child quite quickly worked uh with a with a doula we call it like in the, in the uk like a doula and it was a kind of like like a, a mother's support if you like and the contrast in the two birthing experience was extraordinary and it was the first time in my life that i tapped into the power of being female and the power that your body can have if you allow it to do it like up until that stage i told my body what it needed to do every step of the way i hadn't really tapped into all this incredible power that it had and I had this amazing birthing experience with my second son and it was honestly at that moment where I was like oh I don't don't know how I'm gonna do this but like the female body is extraordinary and we need to know a lot more about that and we need to not just access that in the in birth but we need to access that in health and fitness in sport and that's what I kind of like after Cooper was born I was like right this is what I'm, this is what I'm going to work out how to do. Beautiful. So how exactly do you do that on a daily basis? Yeah. How do I do that on a daily basis? So after having, after having Cooper, I, um, I, I, I stayed within the world of fitness. I stayed within the world of personal training, but got very focused on pelvic health. So I kind of worked like with loads and loads of women, not just in that pre and postnatal phase, but menopausal women, women that were sporty, women that were high-performing athletes, women that had had um, experienced quite a lot of trauma in their lives. And and I really, really adored it. But I knew that the conversations I was having on a day-to-day basis was like, this isn't okay. Like, this isn't okay that women are having to come to me 
to learn really, really basic stuff, like literally how to go to the toilet. Like I'm like, like we should we should know this. Like we shouldn't have to go and pay an expert to learn this. We shouldn't learn, we shouldn't have to pay an expert to learn how to do a pelvic floor exercise. Like this should just be part of what we know because we're women. And so I was like, we need someone needs to do a better job. I don't really I don't really see anyone else. There's lots of brilliant people out there working in their own little kind of populations, but I didn't see anyone doing it on a grand level. I was like, well, I'll I'll give it a crack. And um and I and I hooked up with two of the doctors who were absolutely fantastic in their field. And we're just on an absolute mission, really, to um, educate women and girls about their bodies so they don't hold them back and then educate those sports coaches and those PE teachers and those fitness trainers who are supporting girls and women about girls and women's bodies. So we have women listening right now that are going, did she just connect sports and pelvic floor health? Tell us about that, please. Yes. So did you know, did you know that sports people have higher prevalence rates of dysfunction than the normal population, which is, which is not, not, not a usual statistic when it comes to the body. So if you look at any, anything else like muscle strength, power, cardiovascular health, like anything else, it's kind of, it's, generally positively correlated with your levels of physical activity so the more exercise you do the healthier you are now obviously that there's a point where that doesn't happen but most most cases our bodies are pretty like respond brilliantly to physical activity however when it comes to pelvic health that's not that's not the case and especially when you add into the mix being female aging so menopause and and children when and high impact sports when you add impact at any level into that mix the prevalence rates are really really high and we're talking 50 60 70 percent of 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 a population who will be experienced who will be leaking during training or competition or or you know or just exercising and for people like me who were like born into this world to be active like it doesn't matter it doesn't it doesn't stop me it bothers me but it doesn't stop me but for those people that like don't love sport, don't get that buzz, know they should do it, but they don't really want to, like it stops them. It stops them because they, it's that's, that's like, no, there's no way I'm going to do this because it, you know, because, because I leak or I'm in pain and I'm uncomfortable. And yet <clears throat> there's not really very much support out there to help women in that space. Mm. So menopause care, women's health care and pelvic floor care are all having a moment right now. And it's about damn time, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Right. So I love what you're saying here. We're actually sort of pulling back the curtain, which I love to do on this podcast with the taboos around perimenopause in particular, which is 50, uh, 35 to 55. Uh, typically it's somewhere, women are going to be somewhere in there. So when you say pelvic floor dysfunction, please tell us what that means for women in the mm. perimenopausal era. Yeah. So I think, um, let's take a step back and I, and I suppose like just explain that the pelvic floor is supposed to keep us dry that's its job it's like the roof on your house it's supposed to keep you dry you don't notice that the roof is doing a great job you don't go oh my goodness the roof did a great job today it's like you only notice it when it's not doing a great job and I think that's you know so we just kind of like it, it's kind of business as usual means it's, it's working fantastically when the pelvic floor goes wrong it's leaking 
it's it's leaking when you are doing when you're laughing coughing sneezing or when you are uh doing exercise like jumping landing twisting turning running it's having irresistible urges to empty your bowels or your bladder when you don't want to so we should always be in control of when we want to go to the toilet so we get an urge to go to the toilet and we go to the toilet and we sit down on the toilet and everything comes out and there's no panic or anything like that but at certain times in our life at certain times of our menstrual cycle sometimes for some women they have these irresistible urges and if you are a you know if you're a runner or you, you love exercise you and you start to get these then your enjoyment of that of that physical activity is is really negated and we find especially when it comes to menopause that these symptoms can be amplified and can come on quite quickly whether you've had children or not and so it might be like nothing's changed like i've not i've i've never had any problems with my pelvic floor why suddenly doing exactly the same stuff that i've done in my life am i experiencing these issues um because of the estrogen roller coaster and because the fact that the vagina the vagina in particular and the pelvic floor needs estrogen it is densely populated with estrogen receptors and those and those receptors need estrogen to keep it plump to keep it moist to keep it functioning to keep the to keep the muscles strong and if the if the estrogen isn't there then it then that's that's why suddenly women will enter midlife and they will get pelvic floor dysfunction and the other symptom is prolapse symptoms. And when I mention that word, some people just wince and kind of cower away and are like, do not talk to me about that. It sounds disgusting. It makes me feel like everything's about to fall out of my body. I don't want to know anything about it. Um, but I, I believe like you, thinks that knowledge is important and we need to have this knowledge. And um, a prolapse does not mean that everything is falling out of your body. You can have a real kind of like low level prolapse, which just comes on um, at the end of the day or after an exercise class but you go to bed you lie down flat gravity sorts itself out and the next day you're kind of okay um but again when you get to menopause like post-menopause um the prevalence of, pel of uh, prolapse is, is much higher and actually when you know when I gave that when I when I just mentioned the fact that um the pelvic floor isn't always positively associated with uh with exercise we don't know. Women exercising is a really new concept. And I think we forget that. Like women actually haven't done haven't done high levels of exercise for very long. And so we don't really know what are the consequences of this. And I think that um, I, I predict, my prediction is that actually we're going to be doing a lot more preventative pelvic health work as opposed to reactionary pelvic health work. So we are going to be talking to our 20 year olds who love CrossFit, who love training hard, who love competing about the fact they need to be doing much more preventative work with their pelvic floor because we are living for so long post-menopause without estrogen that we have to take better care of it if we are doing this high level of work. Uh, absolutely. And so I love this prevention piece. And um, I, uh, I interviewed a, a pelvic floor surgeon on the uh, podcast before. I think I told you I hadn't, but I forgot about that one. <laughs> but her, her uh, and this is Dr. Teresa Irwin, she calls herself the vaginecologist and her whole um, philosophy is I, I never want people to be in my office. If I can give them the information way ahead of time and they never have to be there. And that's exactly what you're talking about. And yeah. 
you know, you hit, you hit on a couple of really, I think, big button topics is that women uh, historically didn't do that high level exercise, right? Number one. Number two, we've got a data gap in the research about what happens to a woman's body, especially considering all the hormonal cycles, et cetera, and or menopause, how we train differently, how our performances uh, as the, as the um, hormones wax and wane. And then we've got just this um, amazing ability to see everything now and say, okay, where are the gaps? A woman lives 40% of her life after she has her last mm -hmm. menstrual period. And, you know, the other thing we have to remember is that women, maybe a hundred years ago, uh, we didn't live long past menopause. So there wasn't- no, I think the average age was, was 45. So you, you never even, we never even got there. So menopause in itself is a concept that's never even existed. Cause you know, once we're done with having babies, like there's no, you know, it's all right, job's done. <laughs> yeah. 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 And I think there's a discussion for like, why is it some women don't have uh, menopause symptoms and some cultures don't even have a word for menopause. And the <laughs> truth is it hasn't been that long that women have actually saw, seen the other side of what happens mm. at menopause. So let's get back to the pelvic floor. So um, I love everything you just talked about, but Baz, doesn't Kegels just take care of that for me? Uh, <laughs> right. So, right. So there's nothing wrong with Kegels. Kegels are great, but most people don't even know how to do them. So like, that's a problem. So like, you know, we are not born. We don't know how to do exercises. So I, um, I think that especially the classes that I'm going to now, they'll say, Oh, and connect the pelvic floor and squeeze the pelvic floor and lift the pelvic floor and do your pelvic floor. And, you, and, and the trainer will think that's enough. And you're like, but no one, no one in this class has a clue what you're talking about because we don't know how to do it. So even if, so Kegels, Kegels would be a great start if we actually knew how to do them properly. But if you are doing them properly, yes, but most people will do their Kegels lying down or sitting down most people do not have pelvic floor issues lying down or sitting down they will have pelvic floor issues when they're standing up when they're moving when they're when they're jumping when they're landing when they're coughing twisting turning so we need that kegel to be integrated into our lives and that is that's not what's happening so it's almost like that's a starting point but however however if you're an olympic gymnast for example 90% of gymnasts will be wetting themselves during training or competition now a Kegel is not going to help an Olympic gymnast because she is putting so much force through her body. She needs to start there, but her pelvic floor work needs to be Olympic level two. Do you see what I'm saying? Like, it's kind of like a Kegel's not going to be enough. Now, I don't imagine many people on this listening here are going to be Olympic level gymnasts, but they may well be basketball players or playing football at the weekend or like going for little runs and things and however hard you're training the rest of your body is kind of how hard you need to be training your pelvic floor. So the Kegel is just a start. Okay. I love this concept of the Olympic level pelvic floor. Please tell me that's going to be your next book. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I would love that too. And I think that it's the, you know, I, I've just, I've just literally just before coming on a call with you, I've just been teaching 50 personal trainers uh, on, on a Zoom um, their, about their pelvic floor. There was 25 guys, 25 women, and they were, uh, they worked for a big gym trade big gym chain in the UK and uh, I was teaching all the men how to do their pelvic floor exercises but actually they were you know it's like well how do we how do we look how do we teach a woman to isolate that part of her body how do we teach a woman to feel that part of her body like I've just you know I've, I've explained how I've got to this stage after my when women experience 
trauma and it's not necessarily a birth trauma but trauma in their lives they often it's often around their pelvic region is that part of their body and it and that trauma stays there and so if you're you can't just say you can't just teach a woman how to do a pelvic floor exercises like you would do a squat because they've got to feel a part of their body they might be really ashamed of embarrassed by it may well have been violated it's it's the it's so complex and you've got to layer through you've got to get through all of that emotion and give her a really safe place where she feels safe before she can get anywhere near accessing it and i think that um you know we we can talk about olympic level but often a many you know if like often to get anywhere near the continuum you have to do quite a lot of work and that might not necessarily be physical work to even get to a place where you can access this part of your body right so in total plain speak lots of us carry the trauma of our lives in our pelvis and in our low back yeah. too, but primarily you're right for women it's the pelvis and it may require a mental health professional to help you through uh, but it's the connected the lower back's connected it's all like with your bowel health like they're all constipated like the whole thing the whole thing is connected and if you lying a woman down and you say right we're just going to breathe and you're like tell me what you feel and they're like nothing you're nothing. like yeah like just just tell me what you feel like let's just give this a moment like let's lovely soft gentle deep inhales and exhales where do you feel this breath nowhere like and you're like okay like so they can't get they can't get and they, this isn't this isn't people with massively massive trauma this is like normal everyday women are just like nah I can't feel a thing and so they're going to the gym they're doing their sport they can move their arms and their legs but nothing is going through their core because they just can't they just can't connect it and I think that um especially at you know the middle age spread the menopause whatever the the, the 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 menopausal tummy all that kind of stuff it's like unless you can feel that unless you can feel that part of your body we can't do anything with it and i think that that people um underestimate the amount of work that has to go into kind of like getting into that place absolutely and you know the research is showing us now that the ancestral trauma goes back seven generations minimal so if you and I calculate what we know of our families and what they were going through at that point in their lives, there was nothing but wars back then, right? Right. Mm -hmm. Or ethnic cleansings or women burned at the stake and that sort of thing. Right. So um, whether a woman is able to identify what her trauma might be or not, we still carry it. And, mm -hmm. you know, this is a, a deeply sensitive part of the body. So can you tell us what the pelvic floor is? Yeah. It's, it's a group of muscles and ligaments like that's it like on a mic you know you looked at it under a microscope it would be exactly the same as any other sort of piece of connected tissue in your body it attaches to your coccyx bone at the back and your pubic bone at the front and it's like a hammock so that's the best way of describing it and it holds up the weight of the bowels at the back the uterus in the middle if you have one if you haven't had a hysterectomy and the bladder at the front um and the reason why you know, it's a, a nice way to describe it is the hammock because you like when you visualize a hammock you know that if someone got into a hammock it would give and if someone got out of a hammock it would come up and that's what the pelvic floor is it needs to it works beautifully with the diaphragm so it so as long as you've not closed it off and blocked it off and not doing anything with it it's the as you inhale uh, all your internal organs will will descend because the you know the lungs are filling up with air and the diaphragm flattens out the pelt and, and those that 
those abdominals come down in, towards the pelvis and that pushes the pelvic floor down. And then as you as your breath comes out, the, the, yeah, your, your, all, all the your, in the abdomen all comes up and then that draws the pelvic floor up. So it's a dynamic muscle. And I think that when, when people are listening to us talk about pelvic floor, there'll be many women who have just like started lifting their pelvic floor and are trying to hold on their pelvic floor. And we've, we've been talking about this for like about five minutes now. And it'd be kind of like, no, that's not how it works. It's not, you don't like get it on and hold it on and like try and squeeze it forever. It works with the breath. And that's why the breath is so key when kind of accessing this part of the body. Well, in my very rudimentary understanding of how the pelvic floor works is that for a lot of women, the problem isn't a strength or a flaccidity, which is what we think it's a looseness. I mean, that's what society has sold women. Once we get to a certain age, once we're menopausal, once we've had kids, you know, all of that stuff, which, you know, we could have a whole conversation about that BS, but we won't. <laughs> It's more about muscle spasming and dysfunctioning, in which case, if you're just doing a Kegel squeeze, it's not really going to give you the no. same, it's not going to give you the outcome you think it is. Yeah. And it, this is a really interesting conversation because I, um, I don't want to scare anybody from doing harm to their pelvic floor by doing the wrong thing. So I think that it's very easy to kind of like, um, talk about getting it wrong or ooh, maybe you've got a tight pelvic floor or maybe you've got a pelvic floor that's uncoordinated and so like oh it's really complex and confusing now the biggest trauma to a pelvic floor is childbirth vaginal is labor and childbirth you doing your pelvic floor exercises incorrectly for two or three weeks it's not going to make that much difference like it might not it might not positively have an effect but it is not going to give you a prolapse it's not going to kind of like create massive like irreparable damage so what i what i recommend to everybody is like start doing what you perceive to be a pelvic floor exercise is just give it a go if you just give it a go if after three to four weeks zero has changed then go and see a health professional and then at that point they will be able to do a full assessment of you and they will be able to really accurately analyze is your pelvic floor too weak? Is it too strong? Is it uncoordinated? Is, is like the left-hand side stronger than the right-hand side? Like all of this stuff, they will be able to piece the whole thing together. But if you, if, you know, I have worked with women who, who have a tight pelvic floor, they, they are leaking. So they're like, oh, I must do more exercise. They, they keep squeezing, 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 and they're doing hundreds of these Kegels every single day. And they do it for months and months and months then then that's a problem but if you just do it for a few, if you're doing like a set of 10 20 exercises a day after two or three weeks you're like yeah that's not really improving okay I'll go and see somebody like it's fine it's not a problem you they might say god you know what you need to really work on relaxation but that work you've done is not it's not childbirth and I think that you know I work with I work with women who have such little confidence about their bodies that that scares it scares them so much that they'll get it wrong they do nothing and actually doing nothing it like they won't move at all they won't do any exercise they won't go to a gym they, they're so worried about injuring themselves doing heart etc that they, they just stop and actually our bodies are really good they're resilient they're not fragile they're fragile they are they can be fragile at certain times but i think if we we then we have to have this belief that they're not going to break then that, that we you know that we have to support them and be really positive about it yeah yeah 
much coming to the surface, right? There's so much <laughs> in, in society coming to the surface. It feels like it's coming through the, the uh, female reproductive organs for whatever reason, but again, different conversation, different day. So tell me, is the pelvic floor involved in orgasm? Yes, it is involved with orgasm. So I've worked with people who like who've really said that, like, oh, since since doing their pelvic floor, because they're connected to it and they can feel it, that actually they have they have much better orgasms and they're much more intense than they had done previously. And I think I don't know why. Like I think there's lots of different theories as to why, and lots of people have kind of got their own their own take on it. Mine is that you're 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 daily connecting to that part of your body and it kind of like and and therefore you you the, the neural pathways are better connected so for sure like people have reported that that you know that that their sex life massively improves since you know since they're doing their pelvic floor exercises oh fantastic i mean anything that gets a better orgasm or multi-orgasms for a woman i think is is a good thing yeah. so yeah. so the reason why you and i are here today is really to talk about a new a new baby you've just birthed I know yeah, yeah it's taken a lot longer than nine months I can tell you that much <laughs> it's called the female body bible and it has just been released in the last week is that correct correct yeah yeah just over a week ago yeah fantastic so everything that you've just talked about is in this book in some way is that is that yeah. correct Totally. Yeah, it is. And I think that uh, so I wrote it with two doctors, um, a academic doctor and a medical doctor. Um, and it's called yes, the Female Body Bible. What we fundamentally believe is that there isn't a fix. There isn't an app. There isn't an exercise. There isn't one thing that everybody needs to know or do when it comes to female health. We need to we're not at that place. We need to we need to educate girls and women about everything to do with female health and then allow them to make the decisions that are right for them. So this book covers a real breadth of topics from everything that you'd imagine was in there. So from menstrual cycles, hormonal contraceptions, breast, pelvic health, all the things that happen exclusively to a woman's body. So all the life stages that we experience, but then all the things that happen differently inside a woman's body. So, uh, and it's all connected with sport and exercise. So nutrition our relationship with our relationship with food how our bodies how our um, our hormones are really tightly linked with our carbohydrate intake our injury risk in the UK at the minute all of our professional footballers are getting injured and I think it's the same all around all around the world and they're like why is it we've got a whole chapter on why you know why are women like seems predisposed to be getting injured and what can we do about it um, lots on concussion as well like the, the the gender gaps in concussion and subconcussion how women respond to coaching differently to men so a, a huge breadth of topics but it's written in a really really practical way with loads of great stories all evidence-based so it's fully referenced in the back but the way it's written it's a really easy it's a really easy read that's not gonna you know you don't have to concentrate and take loads of notes it should just kind of like be quite be quite consumable and we want um and we our real belief is that women's bodies are hold, women's bodies are holding them back right now and we need to kind of like really help women understand their bodies so they don't hold them back so they can be active and do the sport and physical activity that they want to be doing fantastic so when you were writing this book co-writing this book with your uh, other co-writers what was the the thing that you learned perhaps in your research or in your writing that just blew your mind wide open Oh, that's a really good question. I think um, I think it was the stuff on concussion. I think that really, really shocked us. I think that, you know, it's, 
you, you think you're a female health expert and you kind of like you're doing all the female health bits but then we started really exploring there's lots of stuff happening in the UK and I'm assuming it's the same over there but it was all like these like 50 60 year old men who are now having Alzheimer's and dementia because of the sport they played as youngsters and that's kind of like there's loads of outrage and lawsuits being taken with that group and we were going to conferences and we were listening to, you know, whether it's schools conferences or scientific conferences and people were kind of presenting the evidence on concussion. And we were like, mm, this is all about men. Like women play sport too. What's happening with women? And actually when we went out and did the research and we looked, women are twice as likely as men to suffer from a non-contact concussion. So that's basically head to floor concussion. Yet they're yet boys are one and a half times more likely to be removed from the field of play. So women are more likely to be concussed, yet we're not, and, and when, but we're not removed, but boys are being removed far often than girls, because I think people just, because they don't clash heads and they don't kind of like, there's not a big kind of clash in the middle, people aren't spotting it. And, and we, and nothing is being presented in a gendered way. It's all kind of like this, you know, this guidance on, um, this guidance on uh, return to play, but, in, but all, all around boys. And we know that actually women have much more severe symptoms and they take longer to return, but the guidance isn't reflecting that. And so that's, that's where on a bit of a mission with that one to kind of really start opening up those conversations because it's a huge duty of care issue. It's a huge issue that you know, I was in the world of elite sport 15 years ago when, when I was on the rowing, British rowing team. And arguably you cannot blame the coaches of the system back then for really not considering any aspect of female health because there wasn't that it wasn't being talked about there wasn't that much out there but now we know so much that it it can't be seen as a nice to have or something that we'll do when we've got everything else right it's like no do you know what this is actually fundamental and we need to we need to start taking this really seriously and the research is telling us that the reason why women have more significant symptoms with concussion and post-concussion syndrome is because of the neck musculature. And I think that's in, it's incomplete. There's a much bigger picture there. It's not just the, oh, she's got a weaker neck, so she's going to have more head yeah. injuries, right? Yeah. When I see that, it just, it sort of incenses me a little bit. Yeah, I know. So it's the, it, no one really knows because no one's, you know, there's very little research you say, but it's something, yeah, it's something to do with the neck, and the lighter head so it's, and it's just like it, our heads just whip our heads whip faster so, so they whip faster so the brain moves more and that's like that is the working theory at the minute so the brain moves more inside so that's why the trauma is more and really interestingly um when estrogen like estrogen has a protective effect on the head so where you are in your menstrual cycle really affects the um, symptoms that you are experiencing yet yeah. if a physician doesn't know that they won't ask they won't say where are you in your menstrual cycle? Because that's really going to affect how we return you to training and playing. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, this is um, one of the things I do clinically as I work with uh, young athletes and, and uh, correcting uh, TBI. So I've, I know this one really well. And, and what was really interesting for me, I've been doing that work for 12, 12 years now. What was really interesting to me was I noticed that the young female hockey players versus the male hockey players, the females would have much more significant symptoms and they lasted longer. And so I got used to asking the question when I have a new, uh, um, when I have a new concussion patient come in, I ask them where a female, where were you in your menstrual cycle? 
when you had your injury, because it is a predictor of how well they're going to do afterwards, how they're going to do with the neuroplastic rehabs and this sort of thing, right? It's a really, really interesting conversation. And we have known that there's a progesterone link to things like knee injuries with athletes, mm. and there's a VO2 max uh, connection to the hormones as well. So we, I think, I think the, um, the takeaway from this bit of the conversation is that we need way more research on what a woman's body does, not just with athletics, but the different pieces and parts of what happens, what can go wrong, et cetera. Because the truth is most of the data, the medical data out there is uh, done with males and male bodies. Yeah. And I think that I've, yeah, we, we have this conversation all the time. And, and at the moment, you hear a lot of we need more research, we absolutely do need more research, but we can't. But my problem with saying that is that it therefore infers that we can't do anything until we get the research. And we know that that's going to be like 10 years away till we get anywhere near like having enough levels of research. So but we know enough. And we actually need to, you know, we need everybody in your position to be saying where are you in your where are you in your menstrual cycle because that's going to affect this like we need to be we can do a lot of work right now with the with 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 women's with women's lived experiences of their bodies like we know enough don't we oh absolutely we do you bet we do you bet and you know we've gone for so many uh, decades without evidence-based right that's kind of the Mm. big thing in science right now well that's fine but that doesn't negate all the other things that have happened right and it turns out the anecdotal stuff is really helpful too so which is what you're saying it doesn't necessarily have to be in a paper for us to feel like it's actually happening or that the paper recommends that we do something it's the same thing if we're talking about hrt by the way let's go back to pelvic floor for a second because man you and i could go deep here But concussion, the, 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 the sex differences, the gender differences with concussion is such a fascinating topic. I am yeah. right there with you. So whatever you learn, send it over. I would love to okay. see it. Perfect. <laughs> okay. So um, pelvic floor and HRT, have you got anything to tell me about there? Uh, the, the, well, that's just the, the vaginal estrogen works. Okay. So we so we got so the the top, topical estrogen does that make like so you have the systemic uh, HRT that goes obviously around the whole body and has that like you know that's what people that's what women will take for their hot flushes and their brain fog and, and whatever else it kind of works over the whole body but as I said the um the the the, the vagina and the and the pelvic floor is so reliant on estrogen that even that we need that micro dosing that tiny dosing really specifically delivered to that part of our body and it makes a huge difference and you know you you can be on hrt and vaginal estrogen you can not be on hrt and take vaginal estrogen those people that are worried about that they 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 they've just made the decision they they don't want to take hrt because of whatever risks they've associated with it um a year's worth of vaginal estrogen is the same as one daily dose of systemic HRT. So the, the dosage is teeny tiny. Um, but I was, you know, I was working with a marathon runner, not a, not a good one. She was admittedly not a good one. She just loved running. And every morning she went out for a run before work and she loved it. And that was her way. That was her coping strategy. That was her way of like managing her life. It was all around her mental health. And she suddenly started experiencing um, these 
irresistible urges to go for a wee halfway through this run and it was really bothering her because she's like I just don't know when it's going to come on I don't know if I'll be in the woods or by the road or in the park I don't know where I'm going to be and I'm and it's bothering me and I'm stopping enjoying this running so she started taking this vaginal estrogen started to come to me and work uh, and working on a pelvic floor health and we were doing these exercises and everything was going brilliantly and about four weeks in she's like started again I don't know what's going on I've just started leaking again I was like oh that's a bit weird and you know like you know I'm sure you're the same like when a, you're working with a patient you're like this makes no sense and you're kind of like throwing all these questions at them and you're like going I, I, I kind of a bit lost here and then I said you're still taking your vaginal estrogen she's like no I stopped that I stopped that because I wasn't really sure if I should like carry on taking it and I was like that's it that's it I said get that back in you and honestly we'll be off and she did and that was it's not going to be the solution, but it it just gave her that bit more bladder support, a bit more bulking up down there, and it did the job. Yeah. Fascinating. So for the women in, in perimenopause and menopause who have troubles with vaginal dryness, is there any pelvic floor thing there too? Um, no, I mean, I think the vaginal estrogen is a thing there. I mean, I, I no, I don't think that the, the vaginal, the itchiness and the dryness, I mean, I haven't, no, I think for the pelvic floor work, it's all around the prolapse. It really helps with the prolapse symptoms and the stress incontinence and the, the urge incontinence is different. So the urge incontinence is not always because of pelvic floor dysfunction, so to speak. That's more of a behavioral thing. And that's a kind of your, uh, your, your body, your cue, the cue to your body to relax your pelvic floor is not working. So your cue, your body, you putting your key in the door or you're seeing a toilet that is what is cueing your pelvic floor to relax and let go and you're not you're not on the toilet yet so that is more a behavioral management you need to take control back and there's, there's different strategies in place to use with that but um with vaginal dryness and itchiness the, you know there's lots of brilliant moisturizers and but you need to get the right ones that are like ph balanced with your vagina not the ones that are kind of um you know oil you know you want the ones that are, that are, that are aligned with the chemistry down there yeah, yeah. And with uh, with an eye to the microbiome of the vagina as well. Yes. That's a really important one. Okay, so when I was doing some research recently about incontinence, I was surprised at the number of women that actually experience and the number is not coming to me right now. So maybe if you've got it at the top of mind, you can share. Yeah, so um, this, the, the, the general number is saying one in three. But as I said at the start, like when you add in babies, aging, um, and exercise it's more it's 50 percent plus and I think that you know the, the different studies but it, it is definitely it is definitely menopause menopause it's 50 percent plus and if you've had a child and you're exercising it's going to be higher than that okay okay well when I saw that number I thought you know I have been talking to women about their hormonal health and the menopausal health for 20 years mm. and it is extremely rare for a woman to bring this up with me that's how much of a taboo this is. This is how yeah. uncomfortable we feel about it. Even though you're in front of a paid expert, an expert that's being paid to help you with these issues, women are not bringing it up. So I am sure that this is uh, vastly underreported, which is what you just, totally. uh, just said. Yeah. And so the re my theory on that is that um, menopause is inevitable. So it's supposed to happen your menstrual cycle is supposed to happen. So there's less of a taboo about talking about something that is supposed to be happening inside your body. When menstrual floor goes wrong, it's poo, sex and wee. And that is, you're supposed to be able to do all those things. 
So if you're if your body is not doing that and you're a high achiever and you've kind of like nailed life and you're doing pretty well, like it's kind of like, oh, like how can I how can I not be doing something as simple as this? And it's the kind of like, oh, yeah, I'm just not, I don't, I, and I, so I think there's that. And I also think that people are absolutely petrified of what the solution might be. And they might be like, oh, they're going to tell me I need to go for surgery. It's like, well, yeah. And there's been, a, yeah, there's been a lot of horror stories about kind of like what, what happens in those situations. It's like, no one can force you to have surgery. And there are a lot more options, but there are a lot more options than that. Um, and, but I think that people are really worried about like what the options may well be that they are presented with. Yeah, yeah, I can see that. And um, I think we're sort of reaching a terminal point in our ancestral lines where we have built up this shame around our bodies, which may, most of it isn't even ours. We've just inherited it from our mm -hmm. society, from our conditioning, from our parents, whatever, right? So I get that. I get that that's where this underreporting is coming from. But I love what you just said. It's not just surgery. I mean, yeah, nobody wants to have surgery on their pelvic floor, but that's an option. But chances are there's, a whole lot oh, of other things that and you that's, that. And that's why when I was saying we need to get into prevention mode, when I, I had this saying that when your body is whispering to you, your options for treatment are huge. Can be anything, can be anything. Alternative, complementary, like talking therapies, medical, like you can, you can kind of approach most problems in whichever way, shape or form you wish to. I know that's a huge generalization, but the options are huge. The louder, the louder that, the louder that voice gets, the more problems you're having with your pelvic floor, the less options that are available to you because it's getting bigger and bigger and bigger and you become, you know, it becomes much more medicalized. But at the start, like if it's just like, oh, you know, I don't know, you're, you're, you're going to the toilet too often or you're waking up at nighttime and going too many times, like it's really, it's a really conservative approach, which will be really effective. But I think the longer we leave it, then it becomes far less conservative, doesn't it? And we have to go pretty heavy on, on what those treatments might be like so many things in female health if we leave it it's going to yeah. be a much bigger thing to deal with and if the first time you hear that intuitive strike that says okay some's not right here i need to go talk to somebody mm. Listen to that. That intuition is so, so valuable. Like this conversation, Baz, it's been amazing. I have learned so much. And, and our friend Patty is so right. You and I need to sit and have a cocktail one day, my friend. <laughs> we do. We yes, do. Yes, we do. And so please go out and get the Female Body Bible. I have started to read it. It is so well written. It is so accessible. It's chock full of really interesting facts about your body. I think it should be like the operators. It's like the operator's manual for a, a female body. So yeah, um, it is, yeah, yeah. And I know you've put a ton of work into it. So I thank you from, from the collective. I thank you for what you've, uh, the dent you've put in this, in this big thank thing you. we call women's health. And so if people want to find, I've got one more question for you, but before I do ask that, if people want to find out more about you and your work and the yeah. book, where do they go? So the well-hq.com, that's where all of our all of our information is on there. We've got loads of information about all the different parts of female health, the information about the book, obviously, but you can find us all on there. Fantastic. And I'll make sure those links are all in the show notes. And so here's my final question for you, which I ask everybody I interview. Don't worry, it's fine. It'll be fun. <laughs> so knowing what you know now, what would you tell your younger self? Trust your body. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> yes. That's it. That's it. And I, uh, 
it would be well it yeah it would be listen and trust your body listen to and trust your body and I think that listening piece is a bit that I never I didn't even I wasn't there was nothing to listen to like I was like nah I didn't I didn't listen to anything so I think that you know but when it is telling you something it it knows what it's doing but you but that is a um that's a vulnerable place isn't it to go to because you're like nah I'm like I am like I that's not enough that's not my body is not enough like whatever it's telling me is not enough so I um, but I would absolutely, that's what I would say. Look, tr- and I try to remind myself that every day because I'm much better now. Absolutely much better. I'm so much healthier than I was as an elite athlete and that kind of really highly driven, focused person. Um, but you don't always get it right, do you? You kind of like, you know, it's kind of, um, you have to keep, it's, it's you have to keep doing the work to get that right. Yeah, it's a practice. Hmm. <laughs> Thank you, Baz Moffat, for coming on the Not Your Mother's Been Mother's pleasure. Thank you. Thank you. The views and nutritional advice expressed by Dr. Fiona Lovely are not intended to be a substitute for conventional medical service. If you have or suspect that you have a medical problem, promptly contact your healthcare provider. No information offered here should be interpreted as a diagnosis of any disease, nor an attempt to treat or prevent or cure any disease or condition. As with any new advice or program, you should always contact your healthcare provider prior to starting anything new. Thank you.